Good morning. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church today on Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem on a white foal of an ass there some 2,000 years ago. They laid palm leaves down for him. They laid the palm leaves down. They waved the palm leaves at him in signification of his uh, status as the king of the Jews. And just a few days later, they crucified him. This is my favorite time of the year. Uh, the, the Easter season, the resurrection is my favorite time of the year. In fact, Easter Sunday is bar none, my favorite Sunday all year, all year long, second only to Mother's Day Sunday. I love Mother's Day Sunday, Father's Day Sunday. You ask dads what they want for Father's Day. I want a new drill. Uh, I, take me out to eat, uh, get a steak. You ask moms what you want for Mother's Day. Moms will say, I want all the kids to come to church. And so I love Mother's Day. <laughs> resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And without the resurrection, we wouldn't have a faith. Without a resurrection, we would not have the Bible. Without a resurrection, we wouldn't have anything. Without a resurrection, I wouldn't be changed and changing. And the same thing for you. So this week... I want to encourage you, if you haven't done it already, spend some time between the cross and the empty tomb. Spend some time this week between the cross and the empty tomb and think about all that was accomplished for you and for me. Think about what Jesus went through. Think about what he suffered on our behalf. Think about the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 will be in verse 47 in just a bit. We're going to look at a betrayal of justice. Now, we have gone from a meal in the home of Simon the leper two weeks ago and looked at the seeds that were sown of betrayal to last week looking at the betrayal of values in the upper room, how the disciples were trying to outdo one another to find out who was the greatest after Jesus just gave them a lesson on servant leadership and took a basin out and began to wash their feet. They start arguing who is the greatest at the Last Supper. And today we'll look at a betrayal of justice starting at the Garden of Gethsemane taking us to the palace of the high priests and the temple court and ending up at the cross. And at the end of the message, we'll observe the Lord's table as a part of the sermon. Now, in preparation for this, if you did not receive a Lord's table packet this morning, hold your hand up, hold your hand up so the ushers can provide one. If you'd like one and you didn't receive one, hold your hand up. We got a couple over here and the ushers will get you one. Secondly, if you are saved and after your salvation, you've participated in the other ordinance or tradition of baptism, having been baptized in a church of like faith by immersion after salvation and participate at the end of the service in this time. Now, the great American hero, editor, school teacher, school teacher, and clergyman, Elijah Lovejoy, left the pulpit and returned to the printing press in order to make sure his words reached the masses. 
The Civil War might have been averted and a peaceful emancipation of the slaves achieved had there been more people like him. Now, after observing one lynching, Lovejoy was committed forever to fighting uncompromisingly the awful sin of slavery. Mob action was brought against him time and time again. Neither this nor many threats and attempts on his life deterred him in any slightest bit. Repeated destruction of his presses did not stop him. He said, if by compromises meant that I should cease from my duty, I cannot. I fear God more than I fear man. Crush me if you will, but I shall die at my post. And he did, four days after making that statement. At the hands of an angry mob, not one of the bigots who killed him was prosecuted. Not one of the bigots who killed him were indicted or punished for his murder in any way. In fact, some of Lovejoy's defenders were prosecuted. One of the mob assassins was later elected mayor of Alton, Illinois. However, one young man was around who was deeply moved by the betrayal of, love, of justice towards Lovejoy. He had just been elected to the Illinois legislature. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln, as a young politician, spoke out against the crime towards Lovejoy, saying, Let every man remember that to violate the law is to trample on the blood of his father and to tear the charter of his own and his children's liberty. Let reverence for the laws be breathed by every American mother. In short, let it become the political conviction of the nation. Uh, the betrayal of justice of Lovejoy seems to have been the defining moment in the formation of Lincoln's political views. 20 years after Lovejoy's death and before his ascent to the presidency, Lincoln wrote to his friend, Pastor James Lemon, reflecting, he said, Lovejoy's tragic death for freedom in every sense marked his sad ending as the most important single event that ever happened in our new government, March the 2nd, 1857. He went on to say, the madness and the pitiless determination with which the mob steadily pursued Lovejoy to his doom marks it as one of the most unreasoning and unreasonable in all time except that which doomed the Savior to the cross. Lincoln went on to lead the country to pass the Emancipation Proclamation, which led to the Civil War. Lovejoy's sacrifice for many would seem futile during his era. But because of his sacrifice, God raised up an Abraham Lincoln to help do away with the awful sin of slavery in America forever. Now, it may seem at times that we will never get justice in this world. It appears at times that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer wrongfully. Human courts oftentimes have an uncanny knack for turning justice on its head. In fact, I remember one in my own ministry, there was a, a, a family on their way to church uh, one Sunday morning, and 
the husband and wife taught the little Sunday school class. We had an early service and Sunday school in between and a, a second service after that and the family that was supposed to teach during the Sunday school hour to some of the children. They were in their car on Foothill Boulevard in Rancho Cucamonga making a left turn onto Milliken at the light. They had the green arrow, but what they didn't know was a man that was uh, amped up on drugs and alcohol, uh, alcohol like 10 times the legal limit and drugs that should have never been in his system with his own two-year-old child in the back seat in a car seat was driving and went through the red light as they were turning and as he did he hit this car of this family on their way to church and when he hit that car all of them were injured and their 18 year old daughter Sarah was killed the family asked me to go to the sentencing of this man. When all was meted out, when justice was supposed to be meted out. And you would think that there would have been years on this man's sentence. You would have think for getting in a vehicle while a drunk, uh, 10 times the legal limit, and uh, being uh, uh, under the uh, substances uh, of uh, uh, drugs in your system and with your own child in your back seat and injuring three people and killing one, you would spend years and years and years in prison. But that wasn't the case. And sometimes... It's not meted out in this world. The most graphic display of injustice is portrayed during the last hours of the life of Lord, the Lord Jesus in our text. Like the betrayal of Benjamin Lovejoy, Jesus endured horrors unjustly for what he believed. And no victim of injustice was more innocent than the sinless Son of God. And he suffered more agony than anyone ever has. Men who openly acknowledged his faultlessness cruelly executed him. Yet at the same time, Barabbas, a murderous, thieving insurrectionist, was set free. This was the greatest betrayal of justice the world has and ever will see. So I want your mind's eye this morning. I want you to, uh, to go with me to Jerusalem in the first century. I want you to take yourself back, and as I read the words of the Gospel of Matthew and John and Mark and others, I want you to, to reflect uh, 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 exactly what's going on during that time and picture yourself there as a bystander so you can maybe get a small grasp in your mind's eye of what was accomplished for you and for me, we see the people involved in this betrayal. Judas. Judas will forever go down in history as orchestrating the greatest betrayal of all. He was called by Jesus to be a part of his inner circle. He saw the miracles. He saw Jesus literally have command over the winds and the waves and the sea and demons and even people. Yet Judas still sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he was jealous. 
Maybe he wanted the recognition. Maybe he wanted the fame. Maybe he wanted the notoriety. Maybe he wanted the attention. Maybe he felt no one valued his opinion. Maybe he thought Peter got a better ear than himself. Maybe he thought John got a better ear than himself. Maybe he felt no one valued his opinion. Maybe he knew the tensions were so high against Jesus and his followers, he decided to cut and run while he could. Nonetheless, the Bible tells us that while Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in Matthew 26 and 47, Lo, Judas... One of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves. Notice what it says in verse 48. Now when he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master. And notice, he kissed him. But notice Jesus' response. It says, And Jesus said unto him, What? Friend. Friend. In spite of the greatest betrayal of injustice ever, Jesus still calls Judas friend. Wherefore art thou come? You see, after Jesus is led away, he is doomed and condemned and killed. Judas couldn't live with himself. He couldn't live with his sin. He couldn't live with his deceit. He was sorry that his sin caused him and others pain, but he wasn't repentant. He may have thought that the feelings would bring him peace. He would have feelings of peace and joy, but they were anything but, and he went out and he hanged himself. And then we see another group involved in this betrayal, soldiers. Soldiers. How many of you served in our military, United States military? Thank you for your service. I appreciate you. But soldiers generally don't want to be involved in politics. It's not their job. Their job is to follow orders. Their job is to do what their commanders say. But these soldiers were used to commence the heinous injustice of apprehending Jesus. Judas has led them to the very place that Christ was praying, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says here, a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people came. The account in John says it this way, and Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons." So you have the, the temple soldiers along with a detachment of Roman soldiers were sent to apprehend Jesus. The Bible says it was a multitude and they were equipped with swords used to kill, staves or rods used to beat somebody down, lanterns and torches. The lights led the way of their dark path towards the crucifixion. And then we see the disciples. Now, notice how the disciples respond in this, uh, uh, this record here in Matthew. It says uh, in verse 55, In the same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hand on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, I'd like to imagine myself hanging tight with Jesus. I'd like to imagine myself that way. 
I'd like to imagine myself when the soldiers came and they were armed with swords and staves. I'd say, okay, Jesus, which one do you want me to take? But the Bible says in Matthew, they fled. I'm sure there was confusion. I'm sure there was fear. I'm sure there was doubt in the hearts of the disciples. That's why they fled. Things get even more interesting when you read the account in John, which indicates Jesus asked permission of the soldiers for his disciples to leave. Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 18. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these, referring to his disciples, go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, I lost none. In other words, they probably were told to go their way after Jesus got permission for them to go instead of them having to endure the persecutions of the cross and the passion themselves, Jesus got permission for them to go so a prophecy could be fulfilled and while they were given permission to go, they took off. That's probably what happened. And then we see another ominous figure lurking in the background, his name, Annas. Earlier, Annas was the high priest. But Annas had never relinquished power and control over the people in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, uh, notice how the events of the betrayal of injustice unfold after Jesus is apprehended by the high priest soldiers. Notice what it says in John. It says, Then the band and the captain and the officers of, of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away, notice what it says, to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest, the same year. The fact that they took Jesus first to Annas shows who really wielded the power at this time in Jerusalem. Annas had been the most powerful man in Jerusalem for the last 20 years. 20 years earlier, he had served himself as the high priest, and for all practical purposes, he had never let go of control. Five of his sons had all succeeded him as the high priest, and now his son-in-law Caiaphas had the title of high priest. Annas himself, though, was the real power broker during this account in Matthew. Annas and his family had managed to turn the office of the high priesthood into a very profitable business. They collected license fees. If you wanted to do business in Jerusalem, you couldn't do business unless you went through the boss. Annas. If you were coming into Jerusalem from around the world, the only way you could spend the money that you had that you, you got from around the world was you had to exchange that money through Annas and his boys. And then the exchange rate was ultimately high because Annas and Caiaphas and all these guys made this major business. If you needed a sacrifice to take to the temple when you came for Passover or first fruits, you went to Annas and his boys. Annas was the kingpin in Jerusalem at this time. And then there's Caiaphas. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26 and 57. It says, And they that laid hold on him led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Caiaphas was merely a puppet to his father-in-law, Annas. 
He and his minions thought that they were important by controlling every facet of life to the people of Jerusalem. They had used religion for their personal gain, but were anything but true followers of God. Caiaphas profaned the office of the priesthood and stood relatively for nothing. And as Jesus is before Caiaphas and the scribes and the elders of Israel, they brought in false witnesses to testify before him. But notice how Matthew gives this account. It says, now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. But notice what it says, they found none. Now, how are you going to put somebody to death? How are you going to try somebody that has no witnesses against him? It wasn't working out. But notice how the account in Mark says it. It says, for many bear false witness against him, but their, their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, we have heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Of course, he was speaking of his resurrection. Uh, verse 59, but neither so did their witness agree together. So I'm sure these false witnesses that couldn't agree together and the ones that couldn't be found were offered a hefty sum to tell their lies and we see some other people that were present at this betrayal. Peter. Peter. Notice what Matthew tells us in verse 58. But Peter followed Jesus as he's being led away to the high priest's palace. Peter followed Jesus afar off and went in and sat with the servants, the Bible says, to see the end. Peter didn't speak on Jesus' behalf. Peter didn't cut or try to cut someone else's ear off like he did to Malchus in the garden, Peter went in and he sat with the servants to see Jesus' eternity. Peter followed Christ, but he only followed Christ from a distance. He did not want anyone to suspect him that he was a follower of Jesus, but the Gospel of John tells us this in John chapter 18 and verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out the other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou not one of the disciples? He saith, I am not. Now the only other disciple that followed closely to Jesus during this tremendous hour of need was the apostle known as the beloved apostle, the apostle John. He did not hide his identity. He did not hide his intentions. He did not hide his allegiance. Everything was all well known. He was not ashamed of who he was or more importantly, whose he was. And what a lesson to every one of us today. Do you know it seems like every fringe group in our world is very loud and proud. I mean, they shout from the housetops how not only uh, uh, they want to you to believe what they believe, uh, they want you to be canceled if you don't. And if you don't believe exactly like them, uh, this half of 1% of the world, they will shout you down and call you a bigot and call you intolerant and everything. 
If you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, oftentimes you're called intolerant. The exclusivity of the gospel is sometimes a profaning factor, but the fact of the matter is Paul told the church at Rome, he said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have some young people sitting up here towards the front, and I know oftentimes on Sundays, uh, some of you young people sit up towards the front, and you sit there and you listen, and you listen well, and I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm glad that you, you try to be a witness at school. I'm, I'm glad that you try to let people know you're a Christian. You know what? I think when you go to school, it wouldn't be a bad idea to put your, the largest Bible you have and put it on top of all your books. Do you still carry books? No, you don't carry books anymore. You don't carry books anymore. <laughs> put the largest iPod, iPad you can find, amen? <laughs> and put the largest font on that Bible and make it so everyone can see, amen? Times are changed, right? <laughs> we ought not to be ashamed. We see not only the people of the betrayal. We see the process of betrayal. We must all understand that we may never get true justice this side of eternity. The account of Jesus here before his crucifixion demonstrates that the system the Jews had in place during the first century was ultimately flawed. And we need to understand that as long as our system here, even in the great United States of America, is run by man, it is flawed. And so we see a couple of things in this process of betrayal. We see the judge. Notice what Matthew chapter 26 and 57 says. It says, And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, it didn't matter what testimony was given or what Jesus or those who would potentially stand by him would say. Caiaphas and Annas and all the religious elite of Jesus' day had already decided that Jesus was going to die. In fact, here's what John chapter 18 and verse 13 says, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest the same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, even before any witnesses were heard, the decision had already been made to kill Jesus by making him a public example by crucifying him on a cross. We see not only the judge, we see the jury. Jesus is now before the most powerful religious people of his day. False witnesses have given their testimony, and Jesus has a chance to answer his accusers. And the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 26, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is that that these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one. Tell us if you're the Messiah. Tell us if you're the anointed one. Tell us if you're the Christ. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And the answered, He is guilty of death. 
Now the council of the Sanhedrin that Jesus was standing before in this moment was the supreme court of Jesus' day. The council consisted of 71 men. 24 were high priests, or chief priests, I, I'm sorry. 46 were elders chosen from among the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And then the high priest took up the 71st person in the council. Now, here were the, the rules they were to follow before somebody was pronounced guilty. Think about this. Two credible witnesses were supposed to be brought forth. Two credible witnesses, not people that couldn't agree with one another. Two credible witnesses were to be brought forth. Not only that, a full day of fasting was supposed to be observed by the counsel between passing the sentence and the execution of a criminal. I mean, they were to deliberate. They were to make this a spiritual thing. They were to say, okay, is this really what should be happening in this instance? To ensure fairness, the council could only try cases when an outside party brought the charges. And we understand from the text, Caiaphas and Annas were trying to drive the charges forward. The accused were always presumed innocent until an official verdict was reached. Uh, criminal trials were not to be convened overnight. Now, nothing in the way of justice was followed in, in the instance of Jesus Christ. It was the greatest miscarriage of justice ever. And then we see the justice. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. They took him to Pilate. Pilate then said, it's not my jurisdiction. He took him to Herod. And Herod said, no, it's not my jurisdiction. And he took him back to Pilate. After standing before Pilate, Pilate could find no fault in him, but to appease the people, he released Barabbas and executed Jesus on the cross. When all the chicanery and this travesty of justice was going on, you would have thought the anger and the ridicule of those that hated Jesus would have been satisfied. But notice what the Bible tells us, the response of those involved in this betrayal there was hatred. These people utterly hated Jesus. I mean, with every fiber of their being, they hated Jesus. Here's what the Bible says in Isaiah, a, a prophecy given 700 years before Jesus ever walked physically in the form he was before he was crucified on planet Earth. It says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Bible tells us in Matthew, they, they totally wanted to vent their hatred towards Jesus. And it says, they spit in his face, and they buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hand. The, the greatest degree of hatred was shown when you would take your hand and literally smack somebody across the face, or backhand him was even worse. I'm not going to talk about any slaps this morning, okay? <laughs> there was hatred. There was humiliation. The Bible tells us the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy who it is that smote thee. 
They put a reed in his hand and a, 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 a reed in his hand, a robe on his back and a crown of thorns upon his head to further humiliate him. Here's what the Bible says. It says, and they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe and when they had plated a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In all of this, we see Jesus' response. While he's hanging on the cross between two legitimate criminals, Luke chapter 23 records this. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First Peter sheds more light on the heart of Jesus in his epistle of 1 Peter. It says, For even hereunto you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You remember the WWJD? WWJD? Anybody remember WWJD? Anybody got WWJD on today? All right. That's where it's from, 1 Peter 2.21. We're to follow his steps. And then it goes on to say this, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And verse 23 says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. When faced with injustice, Jesus did not respond like most people would. You ever have somebody betray you? Maybe a friend? Maybe a life partner? Maybe a coworker, a business partner? Maybe a family member? Remember how much that hurt? Remember the pain? Remember the anger? Or maybe you're remembering the anger that's still present right now because you haven't gotten past it. Remember the helplessness. How you thought, if I can't trust that person, who can I trust? Just imagine Jesus. Creator of all things that are and ever will be the one who spoke the world into existence, now hanging on a cross put there by people that he created. When he faced injustice, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not I mean, he could have called 10,000 angels, like the old song says, and destroyed the world and, and set men free. He could have done that. But when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But notice what the Bible says. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He turned over control of those that meted out the injustice towards him to the Father. He recognized that everything was happening according to the plan of his sovereign 
Father. Now, my best advice to you in dealing with injustice is to turn over the potential vengeance and the hatred completely over to God. And to recognize that God can even use injustice in your life and in my life to accomplish his purpose and his will. He did in the life of Jesus. You see, without facing a betrayal injustice, none of us could be saved because the Old Testament prophesied from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman was going to have his heel pricked and he was going to crush the head of the serpent. The first prophecy of a Messiah, the Messiah was going to come someday and pay for the sins of mankind to make it possible that man's sins could be redeemed. And that's exactly what Jesus through all of the injustice. It happened according to God's plan. And you see, God can even use those sordid circumstances that you and I face to accomplish his perfect will. They then led Jesus down the Via Dolorosa. He made his way to the hill known as Golgotha. Simon along the way being compelled to carry his cross. As they got to the hill, they laid the cross down on the ground, placing Jesus' body on top of it. They then proceeded to take spikes to not just drive them through his hands. Most Bible scholars believe they broke his hands or at least broke them either this way or that way so they could place the nail through this bone here between the radius and the ulna. And supposedly one of the, the big nerve centers in the body are right there so they drove the nails through his hands and they did the same thing into his feet. And the Bible says they crucified him and they parted his garments and they cast lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them and upon my vesture they did cast lots. His body was broken for us. 